The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. I'm not the man on the floor anymore, hopefully. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book. Uh, with myself and my wonderful co-host, Mr. Chris Schroeder. Yes, yes, it's a great day to be clean and sober, you guys out there. And uh, today we are in the fourth edition of the big book. We've moved uh, moved right along. And Chris, we are in chapter three, more about alcoholism, right? That's right, Monty, chapter three. This is such a cool chapter. This is such a cool chapter. This one and uh, we agnostics are... Two chapters I just really love. There's so much information in these chapters, and it's it, it truly is amazing that it was put together uh, by basically Bill Wilson was the principal uh, uh, architect of uh, of the information in this book. But it, there was there was combined experience put together. But when you think about it, Monty, there was really only a couple of people with four years sober. Most of them had less than one year. Yeah, and they were able to put all this information together, and it's so valid even today it's it's so incredibly valid well i'm excited about this uh, well every time we do do one of these shows it just uh and i and i pass these on to people that i'm working with and um it, it it's it's just like god really is moving through this radio program of walking through the big book so let's let's start with uh more about alcoholism we're starting with the word most with that big black m uh-huh. <laughs> Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Uh, per, from per, personal experience, Monty, I thought maybe I, maybe I was an alcoholic, but I'll tell you what, I didn't even understand what an alcoholic mm-hmm. was until I was well into some serious step work. Uh, everyone has an idea of an alcoholic. If you ask somebody, well, give me a description of an alcoholic. Some people will start like, well, they're the bums on the Bowery, you know, that panhandle for money and haven't washed their clothes in two months. Right. And, and, and some people will say, well, that's somebody who drinks t- way too much and gets drunk a lot. And, you know, they'll all have different, uh, a different description of an alcoholic. What, what I love about these chapters is they make it very, very clear. It's not how much you drink. It's not how long you drink. It's not the consequences of your drinking. It's more about your relationship in drink. It's more about uh, power, choice, and control. It's, it's more about uh, it, have you ever really seriously tried to get away from alcohol and found out you couldn't? And when you start to drink, uh, can you control the amount every single time? Can you c- control the amount you take? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, a really, that's a real non-judgmental way uh, to, uh, to paint uh, the picture of alcoholism because it's, it's irregardless of a lot of external circumstances. It, it, doesn't, really, uh, uh, it doesn't really talk about you know, losing everything. It's, it's more about your relationship in drink. Yeah. And that really does make a lot of sense to me because you know, there, can be, there can be someone who you know, doesn't leave the house much, doesn't ever cause any trouble, who can be just as alcoholic as the person with 10 D, DWIs. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's more about the relationship and drink than it really is about the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, the, the problems that you have when you drink. And that just makes a lot of sense to me. Because a lot of people have those problems when they, when they drink on occasion and aren't alcoholics. You know, is it possible, Monty, is it possible that 
than if you were a person who, you know, drinks a little bit too much on New Year's that you could have a couple DUIs. Oh, sure. And that you and that you're not an alcoholic. You, you know? Absolutely. I mean, that's possible. Is it possible that that you got caught up in a in an intervention or something and because you got a little bit too drunk at the at the at the Christmas party at work, and you know you were asked to seek some help. Is it possible that that could have happened to you? And you're you're not an alcoholic. Absolutely, a- abso- absolutely. Yeah. So, so their their definitions of uh, of alcoholism, I, I think, are valid. You're gonna you're gonna find that uh, different treatment centers or, or different uh, clinicians are gonna have a different set of questions for you to answer. Uh, but all in all, I, I really go back to this. Uh, can you control uh, the amount you take once you start drinking? And can you control, uh, can you make a decision that's going to be, going to last the rest of your life to separate from alcohol and, and have that decision mean something? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you really are alcoholic, you're, you're going to find that you can't stay away from it. And you're going to find that once you start drinking it, you're going to get drunk. You know, you're not just going to have two and go home usually. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I like that. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. I used to do this all the time. I mean, it, it was not something I, I wanted to spend a lot of time thinking about, but mm-hmm. I knew. That, you know, I knew deep down inside that I was not drinking like the people I was hanging out with, especially early on. Yeah, uh, they 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 drank as much as they wanted and stopped whenever they wanted, and and I I just I just seemed to always end up drunk. I was always the drunkest person, and you know, the I, I only until I really got deeply into this book did I realize what the problem was. I really thought I was making the choice to get drunk. Oh yeah, I'm going to get so drunk that I have to crawl to the car. <laughs> you know, it's not really a, a decision someone is going to make, but uh, but your mind plays tricks on you. It's it's very very difficult to be completely honest with yourself where, when it concerns your drinking when you're alcoholic. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the idea that somehow someday he would control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. There's a period of time when my drinking was just an absolute blast, Monty, and and uh, slowly it, I crossed the line into really, really abusive drinking, really out of control drinking. And yet I was always hoping to recapture that feeling in the past, you know, with the high school party drunk, that you know there weren't any problems, and it, it gave me courage, and I had a really good time. I was still trying to achieve that when my drinking had gone so far past that into into such chronic and obsessive drinking that there was not going to be any any more fun for me in drinking. There it's, just wasn't. I was not going to have that peaceful, easy feeling that yeah. alcohol gave me in the beginning. Uh, it, it just became too much of an obsession. I, I, it's funny you say that because uh, with narcotics, I was always chasing the high. With alcohol, I was always chasing my youth and being able to, to have those few beers and and have that camaraderie and all that stuff it was kind of different you know a lot of alcoholics are like overly sentimental you know they're holding on to times in the past oh man things were good and friends were good (laughs) friends and all this other stuff it's it's almost part of the illness yeah you know we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic this is the first step in recovery now, you know, when they list out the steps, they basically say that you, you need to admit that you're powerless over alcohol, dash that your life, life had become unmanageable. Really, the, that's the short form. That's the, that's the form on the blind. But the, the real truth about the first step you find right here in the second paragraph for more about alcoholism. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be, has to be smashed. You need to understand that because you've slipped into uh, into alcoholism, that you're not going to ever be able to say, safely drink again, no matter how, how long you stay away from alcohol, no matter what. Because once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, unfortunately. 
Now there are a lot, you know, if you're around long enough, you're going to you're going to hear about every cure in the world. They've got a new pill, there's this new DVD set, you know, uh you know, drink safely, you know, uh, uh, this is a program that will allow an alcoholic to drink safely. If you're a real alcoholic, that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. If you're a heavy drinker, there's a lot of hope for the heavy drinker. That's the person who hasn't lost all cho- all power, choice, and control. They can stop or moderate uh, if given a good reason or a good therapeutic or a good medication. They're going to be able to do it. But the way they describe the alcoholic in this book, uh, science, medicine, they've not been able to come up with uh, something yet, and it's very, very dangerous. A lot of these uh, these people who uh, who want to make money on alcoholics and want to come up with like a quick cure. Um, it's very, very dangerous for an alcoholic to try that. The only hope is abstinence for the alcoholic. The only hope is never putting alcohol back in your body ever again in any form at all for any reason. Uh, that's that's going to be your only hope, not a pill or a therapeutic or or a book. You know, you're gonna you're gonna need to stay abstinent. And uh, and and this this uh, this chapter talks a little bit about how you can do that. Well, and you you know, <laughs> um, most people are allergic to poison oak. It's not that the poison oak is poisonous. It's that most human beings are allergic to it. Well, I'm still allergic to poison oak, and I have to stay away from it because I'm a little more allergic than some, and I I really really get sick. Let me ask you, excuse me, let me ask you a question. Um, we know that alcoholism can be genetic. Do you think a person can develop alcoholism through alcohol abuse? Uh, you know, I, I I would say that I'm not a clinician enough right. to really answer that. Uh, I you know I I try to pay attention to a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of the, the the clinical writings and but not being a clinician sometimes i don't understand them that well i do know that there is a genetic com- component some people will say they have not found the alcohol gene some people will say they've found 16 genes that contribute to alcoholism uh i think i think gene coding is uh, is uh got a little ways to go before we really have uh, our finger on exactly what's going on genetically uh i think personally just from my experience and my experience working with other people, is that you have a, a predisposition for alcoholism, or, or you have alcoholism and haven't drank yet, uh, or, or you don't. And, and that's, that's, that's really, that's really my, my belief. Now, can you drink so much that you become addicted to alcohol and have to be detoxed? Yes, I, I believe that that can happen whether you're alcoholic or not. Yeah. You know, you put enough alcohol in you, your body is going to get used to it and and uh, become uh, used to needing it for certain uh, processes. So I've seen a number of people who literally had to be detoxed, but once they were detoxed and they had the idea that they need to not drink again, didn't. I don't really, I don't really consider them alcoholic. If they can just say, I'm never drinking again, uh, and not ever drink again without spiritual work or mm-hmm. without anything else. Uh, I don't consider them alcoholics. They were problem drinkers. <clears throat> and again, a lot of people mistake uh, problem drinkers for alcoholics, and a lot of people mistake alcoholics for problem drinkers. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's I think it's necessary for you to understand your own truth, and and to be able to fully concede to your innermost self what is going on with you. You know, and you can do that with a lot of the information in this book. Uh, putting it up against you, very honestly, up against your personal experience. Good. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control, and I believe that's to be true, too. Some people uh, some people relapse money, and they go back out, and they have, like, two drinks that night, and they say, oh, it's no problem here. And the next time they start drinking, they have 50 <laughs> and pretty quickly they realize that, you know, whatever, whatever control they might have had the night before, they don't have it tonight. Right. And the thing is, is, is if there are nights when you don't have control and there are nights when you do have control, you need to ask yourself the question, am I in control of which nights I have control? <laughs> understand what I'm saying? <laughs> That's very good. Yeah. you're not yeah. in, in, in control of, of uh, the nights that you can control your drinking, you really don't have any control. Yeah. Uh, all of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which in time led to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. 
Monty, ever been pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized? Yes, I have. <laughs> that is not a great place. No, to it, is, it? it is not. It's horrible. I got, I got to tell you, you know, after one more relapse or after one more run, you know, you come to and you got the summons in your back pocket for the DUI and, you know, you, you, you can't remember the last two or three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you become pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized. You have to ask yourself, would anyone choose that type of struggle for themselves? This is what this is what I believe about uh, the disease or the illness, alcoholism. I think we get caught up in something that's much larger than us, and I think our ego wants us to to to, to accept responsibility for a lot of things that we're not responsible for. Once you start drinking, you you are you're gone uh, most of the time. In other words, you, you're just you're not going to be able to say, well, I'm going to stop at four. Right. Uh, what you're going to do is is wake up in Al- Albuquerque with one shoe wondering how you got there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and a lot of times, uh, a lot of times you're, you want to not be uh, such a loser, so you want to say, well, I really like partying in Albuquerque. I mean, you know, uh, and, and, and most of the time if you really look at this, you're going to see that there's a, a real disconnect between what you want to do and what you end up doing. Mm-hmm. And that's a lack of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lack of control. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period of time, we get worse, we never get better. I, you know, it took me a long time to see this. It does not say over any considerable drinking period of time, we get worse, never better. That's true. But I believe alcoholism gets worse while you're sober. And the reason why I say that is because when I see people relapse, they can have five years, they can have 10 years, they can have 20 years. They don't go back to the drinking that they left off at. They go back to where the drinking would be if they continued the progression. In other words, let's say you were drinking a quart of vodka at night when you finally sobered up and, uh, and you've, been, you've been dry for five years. You start drinking again. You don't go back to a quart a night. You go back to a quart and a half a night, where you would have been if the progression was allowed to continue. What happens is is your liver and pancreas and your body's ability to uh, uh, to process that alcohol has has continued to deteriorate, whether you're drinking or not. And now you have even less power, choice, and control than you had when you quit before. And a lot of times, it's a lot harder to quit the second time. Ask anybody that's relapsed. Uh, I know a number of people who said it was pretty easy the first time. You know, I I went back out, and, oh, man, am I having a hard time getting back in. Mm -hmm. So I I think alcoholism gets worse. It doesn't get better, even when you're participating in recovery, Uh, the physical part of it at least. Yeah, I would would agree with that because that – Now, your life can get better. You can really grow spiritually. Your quality of life can go, you know, go out the roof if you're living a program. Uh, but the fact of the matter is you need to know that you're bodily and mentally different than non-alcoholics, and you cannot ever ingest alcohol again safely. So you need to be where you'll be spiritually fit so that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men, and there really still isn't, no matter what anybody says. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery, followed always uh, by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree that there's no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. And I don't believe it has yet either. The things that seem to be helpful for people that drank too much uh, and seem to be helpful for them, I believe that you know those are effective therapeutics or medications for the heavy drinker, you know, uh, the person who's an alcohol abuser, not someone who is dependent on alcohol. Yeah, and I think dependent on alcohol, you're going to always be dependent on alcohol. And I, I you think know, I, I had an issue. I, I don't remember if I, I've uh, I've talked about this on the show, but I had an issue with nicotine. In 1992, I quit smoking cigarettes. It was brutal. I remember a couple of months of just, you know, real horrible cravings. And then I spent 15 years completely nicotine-free. 
I'm over in Copenhagen a couple of years ago walking down the streets, and there's all these shops that are selling Cuban cigars. And I'm thinking, Cuban cigar, money, you know, what could go wrong having a Cuban? Just a Cuban. <laughs> it's not a cigarette. It's a cigar. <laughs> I, I smoke a Cuban cigar. Within two weeks, I'm back to two and a half packs a day of cigarettes. Now, I find out later from a friend of mine who's who's a you know a, a nicotine addiction expert. He goes he goes, Chris, you you activated your, the nicotine receptors. They were just waiting for you to activate, and as soon as you activated them, they were pre-programmed to, to tell you how much you needed to smoke. And the same kind of thing happens with alcohol. You you have uh, you have the receptors that uh, that accept alcohol, and they're going to be pre-programmed to, to tell you how much you need to drink, and you're going to have very little to say about it. And that's what happens yeah. with the alcoholics. I think I think that uh, it's a science science may one day accomplish it, but it hasn't it hasn't yet. Well, you know, alcoholism because it's not just a scientific you know physical thing but it's spiritual as well i i don't think if you're just looking at it from the physical i, I don't think you'll ever come up with anything I, I don't either you know if they if they came out with a pill tomorrow that allows you to drink two drinks socially if you're an alcoholic my, my thought would be to, to double and triple down on that pill you know if i take three of those pills i can have six drinks normally mm-hmm. and, you know i mean that it's a, it's a mental problem too it's not not necessarily all physiological right you're not going to solve the whole issue with a pill because pills don't necessarily change your perspective they don't change change your thought processes so it, it's a it's a complicated issue that many people misunderstand Many clinicians get into it with a misunderstanding and because, you know, they're, they're looking at one piece of the puzzle and they're working on one piece mm-hmm. and there's a whole bunch of pieces. So mm-hmm. it, you're right, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated endeavor. Yeah. And the only uh, real solution that I've ever seen that works every time somebody really participates in it is the spiritual one. Mm-hmm. And that's what this book is about. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Here are some of the methods that we have tried. Drinking beer only. And I like turning these statements into questions. And how I do that, Monty, is like this. Chris, have you ever tried drinking beer only? Yes. <laughs> Chris, have you ever tried limiting the number of drinks? I did that once. I bought a 32-ounce glass so that I could tell everybody I'm only having one or two drinks. Never drinking alone. Uh, never drinking in the morning. Uh, you know, Chris, do you, have you ever drank in the morning? Yes. Uh, have you ever tried to never have, a, never have it in the house? You know, some of these yes, some of these no. Never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy. I switched from bourbon to schnapps one time, trying to control my drinking money. And the <laughs> thing was, is my body demanded a certain amount of alcohol, uh, a, a, a certain um, um, amount of alcohol in my body. That's what it demanded. So I was drinking like two bottles of schnapps a night. And I got to tell you, that was getting messy. Ooh. Drinking yeah. only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with or without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums or rehabs and detoxes, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. Who else but us, you know, accept <laughs> voluntary commitments to asylums, you know? <laughs> I think I'll sign myself into the asylum again, you know? I mean, yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> we could increase the list ad infinitum. Now, you know, I have to look at this stuff. Have I ever tried to do this or things that are similar? I, I have. I went on a beer. Uh, I went on a beer thing for a while. I'm only going to drink beer, and I was drinking two six packs of Tallboy Budweisers every night. Mm-hmm. Gained like fifty pounds in six months. Uh, we do not like to pr- pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Now, one of the things that you don't hear too much in, in, the, sh- in the support groups are these suggestions. There's a suggestion for you to try if you don't think you have the physical craving or the allergy to alcohol. 
And then there's, uh, there's a test that you can perform yourself if you don't think you have the obsession of the mind. Now, these are, these are things that you're not going to hear blatantly suggested at most, uh, most, most uh, support group meetings, but they're valid because I believe it's important for you to know the truth. I think they're valid, and I'm very careful when I suggest them to people. But there are times when I think you need to know the information, whether if you have the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. I think you need to know that so you can take the first step. Mm-hmm. So here, uh, here is, uh, here's the test for if you have the allergy of the body. Um, step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide. If you are honest with yourself about it, it may be worth a bad case of the jitters if you get full knowledge of your condition. So they're more interested in truth than in how much time you have. You know, yeah. uh, the, the thing is, is if you're not sure you have the allergy of the body, which is the first drink asks for the second, the second demands the third, the third insists on the fourth, the fourth screams for the fifth. If you're not sure that you have that, give it a try. I'll tell you what, Marty Mann, who uh, started the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence many years ago, had a test. She said, drink two drinks a day for six months. You can't save them up and see what happens. If you're really alcoholic, you're probably not going to make it very long. What's going to happen is you're going to say something like this. Well, you know, this is the third day I'm doing this, and I think this test is pretty crazy. You know, uh, and I think I passed it. I think I'll celebrate, you know, or some crazy thought like that. But if you can't just drink two drinks a day for six months, if you can't do that, if something interrupts that test, you're probably alcoholic. And do you think, though, uh, kind of playing devil's advocate here, too, um, that a person could drink two drinks uh, a day for that period of time and still be an alcoholic? Anything is anything is possible, and I, I would hate to say no, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is that most alcoholics have achieved a certain level of yeah. uh, of craving, and that's quite a, that's quite a bit of time to try to control your drinking if you can't. You know, uh, I I don't think I would make it a week. I wouldn't if either. that. I probably wouldn't make it the second night personally. But you know, there may be people who are just strong-willed enough to pass that test, and then after that, just drink as much as they want to drink like crazy. And they may be they may be an alcohol abuser or a heavy drinker. But I don't think too many alcoholics are going to get through that. Yeah, test. I agree. Well, you know, what happens is is there's just a your body just screams for more alcohol, and you're going to come up with a reason to put more in. You know, um, uh, there's a, a real lack of control. Though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop uh, while there is yet time. We've heard of a few instances where people who have showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period of time uh, because of an overpowering desire to do so. Um, a man of, here's, here's the man of 30. There's the man of 30, there's Fred, there's Jim, uh, and they're all, they're all stories that are designed to show you what powerlessness looks like. How does powerlessness present? in alcoholism. And this is, this is a good story. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another job. An exceptional man He remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle, and in two months he was in a hospital puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. 
then gathering all of his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem which money could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. So he didn't just go back to drinking where he left off. Right. He was dead in four years, you know. Yeah. He died. And this happens to so many alcoholics. Sometimes they can remain dry. But once they start drinking again, uh, they just activate everything, and it's very, very difficult to separate again. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found he was, uh, he was just where he left off at 30. He was actually much worse off. We have seen this truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever or worse. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. I'm going to read this sentence again because a lot of, a lot of people in, uh, in different support groups, Monty, believe a day at a time means we quit drinking a day at a time. That's a complete misunderstanding of the day at a time slogan. The day at a time slogan means we live life a day at a time. We try not to get too involved in worrying about the future or regretting the past, and we try to live in the now. Mm -hmm. And that's a great spiritual way to live. But as far as our understanding about alcohol and what we can do with it, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. You know, if, if, if you have that notion, that notion uh, could sabotage your recovery. It could quietly erode your will to do the things that you need to do to stay sober. Mm -hmm. So it's a really mm -hmm. good idea to get as close to your first step truth as you can. And when you truly, uh, fully concede to your innermost self that you're alcoholic, that concession means I can't drink anymore. I can't drink anymore. I need to do whatever I can possibly do uh, to place myself in the position where God can keep me safe and protected because alcohol can't go in my body anymore. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I'll never be able to drink again. Yeah. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop as he did on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired will find he can win out. The peculiar mental, mental twist is the obsession of the mind. That's the inability to make a decision never to drink again and have that mean anything. The time and the place is going to come and that resolve will be out the window and alcohol will be down your throat. That's just the experience that alcoholics have. You know, many of us have said, I'm never drinking again. I promise. I promise. You know, I'll sign my name in the Bible. You know, I really promise this time. Really, this time I really mean it. This time I really understand and I really mean it. And those those things, it doesn't matter, you know, if you, if you don't have a, a fundamental uh, spiritual experience, it's not going to matter that you don't want to drink. Uh, if you're alcoholic, you're going to without a vital uh, spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Several of our crowd, men of 30 of less, had been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. So it doesn't matter how long you drink, it's the powerlessness. How powerless are you? To be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time, nor take the quantities some of us have. This is particularly true of women. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms see large number of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try to get them to see it. <laughs> yeah. As we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower. And that's a, that's a problem, because by the time the obsession of the mind is strong enough to keep you drinking, mm -hmm. just now you're starting to really try to get away from it. So, so you didn't even want to stop drinking before you're too far gone to be able to. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's really a problem. I think I said uh, the other night, the chains of alcoholism are too uh, light to feel until they're too strong to break. Yeah. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, uh, this this is the test for do I have the obsession of the mind? Can I just not drink on my own willpower without going to the support groups, without doing these 12 steps, with, you know, without turning my will over to God? Can I just quit on my own? This is the test that you can you can take if you think you can do that. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. Don't go to meetings. Don't get a counselor. You know, don't read self-help books. Just don't drink. Just don't drink, no yeah. matter what. If you're an alcoholic, you're probably not going to last the year. I'm not saying that you can't, but you probably won't. You're going to come to the conclusion that I'm really, this is really a stupid test. You know, the boys are going out <laughs> for football night. You know, the heck with this whole thing. You're you'll, right. you'll change your mind somehow, and you'll end up drinking. So this is this is how you can tell whether or not the obsession of the mind is operative in your uh, um, in your case. If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In our early days of our drinking, we occasionally remain sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. On my own, Monty, I, I was basically able to stop one time for two weeks. I did something incredibly embarrassing, you know, uh, in in my neighborhood, and I was humiliated. You know how we are. We, we, yeah. You know, we come out of our, we come we we come to the next day going, I can't believe I did that, and I was so humiliated. I made a decision to not drink, and I think I made it about ten days. That was somewhere in the early eighties. That that was the last ten days sober I was going to see for a long time. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. And that was definitely me. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. That's the whole thing. This book is about, uh, okay, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really in trouble with alcohol. I really need help. This book is about how do you stop, but it's also about how do you not start again, because that's the big thing. The craziest thing we ever do, the stupidest decision we ever make, is putting alcohol in our body one more time. Mm. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power of choice, whether he will drink or not. This is interesting. Whether a, such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual base depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power of choice, whether he will drink or not. If you haven't gone down the scale far enough and you really can stay stay dry a year on your own, yeah, you, you haven't gone down the scale as far as the most of the people that you know were putting this book together. Uh, so, but if you've lost that power to choose when you're going to put alcohol back in your body. You cannot quit unless it's on a spiritual basis, this book is saying. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or wish. Uh, the last couple of dr- couple of years of my drinking money, I I was desperate to stop drinking. It was killing me, and, and it was, I I almost just gave up the fight. I I knew that no matter how much I wanted to not drink, I was going to. Mm-hmm. How then shall we help our readers to determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful. But we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. The problem is, is every time you got drunk, you did it sober. So obviously, the problem (laughs) lies in the mind, and it lies in a place called sobriety. You're making the bad decision sober. Mm. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? 
Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a salon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we should call Jim. The man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable world war record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal as far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. Ever have that nervous disposition, Monty? you got to quiet it with a couple of shots. Oh, you betcha. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. Probably he was just showing up. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for a business he had lo- uh, the business he had lost through drinking. That would upset you. You're now a salesman for the automobile agency that you inherited. <laughs> All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, which means he didn't go through the steps. Yeah. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he, he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for which he had great affection. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened, and this is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I love that. I think that's, that's a little bit of Bill humor in there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're great at showing up Tuesday. Tuesday instead of Monday, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, that's just like us too, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. That's how they sold cars back then. They actually drove them around and, and showed them to people. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought that I would get a sandwich. I had also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I'd been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Now, let me ask you again. You know, there's a lot of tools that you find in treatment and you hear them in support groups that are very, very good tools. But let me let me ask you, you know, uh, this guy didn't want to drink. He wasn't even thinking about drinking. He wasn't planning his drunk. Like a lot of people think, oh, you plan your relapse long before you take it. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't, you know, it's not really like he was hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. He was a little bit hungry, maybe. But here's the thing. This is in the squiggly font. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured that I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. This guy had been to the asylum six or seven times, Monty. He vaguely sensed that putting alcohol in his body was not a good idea. He goes to the asylum every time he drinks. You know what I mean? This is that strange mental twist, the strange mental blank spot that precedes the first drink. It does not allow rational thought. You don't have time to call your sponsor or get to a meeting or make coffee or anything like that. When, when suddenly hits, when suddenly hits, you're in trouble. You know, suddenly is a manifestation of the mental obsession. And when suddenly hits, you're putting whiskey and milk vaguely sensing that it's not a good idea. So, so this this is where I say, when when people say, "Well, call me, call me right before you drink." You know, if you're sitting in a bar and you ordered to drink, call me before you drink it. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to call you before I drink that. By the by, the time you're you're at the bar, you've already let your spiritual condition drop to such a point that you're you know you're hosed anyway. You, you know, you, you're there's nothing that's gonna gonna keep you from from drinking. I mean, it's, it's a matter of there's things that you can participate in to protect yourself against the obsession of the mind. But there's nothing you can do about it. In, in other words, you, you can 
you can uh, participate in a spiritual life. You can broaden and deepen your relationship with God. You can make amends. You can work with others. Those are all things that you can do to, to, to participate in your recovery. And they grant you immunity from drinking those things, as long as there's a right relationship with God. Yeah. But the thing is, is if you're feeling, you know, if you've sat down at the bar and all of a sudden you start to get a craving, you know, that that, that mental obsession for booze, you're, you're drinking, but it's already too late by that time. Yeah. The experiment went well. <laughs> okay, the experiment went well. He, he had a whiskey and a milk uh, and nothing bad happened. It went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. You know, whiskey, whiskey and milks, man. Ugh. Thus, I lo- this is my favorite line in the book, Bonnie. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. <laughs> you know, how, how many times has that happened to us? You don't, you don't walk across the street to a bar and say, bartender, I'm about to order a whiskey. But before I do that, I'd like to tell you about the last time I drank. Last time I drank, my family left me. I, I drank for four weeks straight. I ended up in the emergency room. You know, I was 50 pounds underweight. I, I, they put me in a, a, a detox and a rehab for 90 days. I, I came out. I, I've been struggling and, you know, going to meetings and working with people. And, you, you know, slowly over the course of the last last. 15 years I've put my life back together to such a point that it's barely you know it's it's bearable today and there's actually some joy in it and I'm about to order a whiskey so that I can go right back to where I was the day I checked myself into the rehab <laughs> could I have a double I mean you know you don't you don't drink on the truth like that you know you you can't keep your memory green like that unless you're spiritually fit and you know what you the the humor here is when he says the experiment went so well, right there I stop because then it says that I ordered another whiskey. Well, if it went so well, you wouldn't have ordered the other whiskey. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's absolutely absolutely crazy. Yeah, it, 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 he 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 wasn't even there. The thing is, he wasn't even there for that decision. And if you really ask an alcoholic. The next time, why they drank. If they're being honest with you, the answer is going to be, I don't know. It's really, it's going to be, I don't know. Because you're not there. You drink from a place of insanity. Because no one of sound mind is going to make the decision to put alcohol back in their body if they're an alcoholic. It's crazy. So you don't make the decision from a sane state of mind. You make it from an insane state of mind. And an insane state of mind means you're not even really there. It's to get deep into the first step like this, to really start to look at how alcoholism presents and a first step picture of alcoholism really paints a bleak picture. Really, you can't get you can't get done with your first step and be happy about it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, Oh, I I found out I'm an alcoholic. You know, I mean. If you've really seen the first step, you see how much trouble you're in. You, you're you not even going to be there when you drink the next time. Mm-hmm. And once you start to drink, you could drink you could drink continuously for two years until you die. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what you see. Hmm. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Remember, he'd been working with Bill and the boys, and he'd been in the asylum at six or eight times. Mm -hmm. Yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in the favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. (laughs) Whatever the precise definition of this word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here because there's another transitional piece in this chapter, Monty. But that really is, that really is a picture of the mental obsession. You know, I, I'm sure that you've experienced that yourself, knowing that it's a bad idea to put alcohol in your body, but doing it anyway. Yeah, and, and you know what? It, it's This is interesting because it's never been... Uh... You know, it suddenly comes and, and I just do it. I mean, there's always been, uh, even if it was fleeting, a thought of this, I shouldn't be doing this. 
you know, and then I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is a really bad idea. Could I have another one? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. You, you know, uh, insanity, uh, if you follow the root definition of insanity, you'll find that it's more of a legal term, really, than it is a medical term. Uh, it was basically developed to protect uh, people who, who really didn't who, who really didn't have you know the access to same same uh, judgment where it concerned right or wrong or, or breaking the law or not and the the insanity defense was was uh, was started and that was basically the insanity defense was we can't find someone guilty of something they that they're not they're not able to even understand you know it's not like it's it's not like ignorance of the law it, it it's like not being capable of judgment from right and wrong mm-hmm. and and that's what the insanity defense was so they're talking about that we're insane prior to drinking and that's that's a good description of it because we don't have access to right and wrong good and bad you know that this is we, we don't we don't we're not capable of making that decision Mm, boy, that's powerful stuff. <laughs> it is powerful stuff. I love this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Wow, just lots of... Uh, the thing I love about this chapter is, you know, we've gone from milk, and now we're getting into uh, to meat. And uh, it, it's just... Uh, it's nourishing. It's nourishing stuff. It is. It is. It's absolutely important. And it's... Listen, it's going to help you help other people. Yep. This information really really is going to probably help you uh, to work with other people so that you can maybe better explain some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, folks, uh, I'm glad you joined us today. More great stuff as we've been walking through the big book with Chris Schroeder. Thank you, Chris, once again for for a great uh, hour of really learning, teaching, and uh, sharing uh, what really God has helped you to come to understand as you have walked through the big book. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. All right. My friends, don't forget to come back next week as one more time with Chris Schroeder and myself, we walk through the big book. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. <laughs>